The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, praise the Lord. It is always an honor and a privilege to be with you. And thank you, ladies. I can say that that is now a new favorite of Belcroft Bible Church, too. <laughs> they just don't know it yet, but <laughs> it will be. <laughs> That's for sure. That was powerful. Wow, I was, I was having to restrain myself during that. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Yes, it is always an honor and always comfortable to be with you because I do feel like part of your family and you are part of our family. We are intimately connected as sister churches in every way. We pray for you. We talk about you. We learn from you. We're growing with you. All of the growing pains that you are having are the same ones we're having, and it is a blessing. And yes, the Lord has answered years worth of prayers on what to do with all of our expansion and growth that he has been so graciously giving to us and he did what obviously seemed impossible but he we were able to purchase a a dead Methodist church and uh, and we are thankful for that and it's kind of an interesting story I won't go into all the details but a, but last spring nothing we were doing was working and the people kept coming and we knew we've got to put people somewhere what are we going to do, Lord? And one of our elders said, hey, maybe we ought to just start praying that maybe a church is dying that we could buy. I mean, that's kind of where we were. It was just like, what are you, I mean, we're down to our last ditch. And, and so it's like, hey, let's do it. Our Lord owns the cattle on Thousand Hills. He can do anything. And so we did. We started praying, and that was in the spring. Well, long story short, long in the fall, we get a, a letter in the mail from this church kind of wondering if we might help them. And, uh, well, we were like, we don't know if we'll help you, but we'll buy your church. And uh, all the elders in our elders meeting looked at each other and thought, nah, that's not, you know, we were kind of like, kind of like, that's not nothing. Like, move on to the next agenda item. And one of the elders was like, hey, guys, we have kind of been praying about this, haven't we? And we all got convicted, and we were like, yeah, we have, haven't we? We should, we should, okay, so we said, three elders, go check this out. And when you come back and tell us it's a joke, it's not going to work, then we'll move on. And we kind of didn't think much of it, and they came back after this, you know, investigative mission, and they're like, guys, this could work. And then we were really convicted. It was like, all right, let's do this. And so essentially, we were able, by God's grace, to buy this church in about 30 days, which was a miracle in and of itself. And uh, which doesn't happen, but when the Lord's hand is, is in it, a lot of things happen. And so we will not probably be moving there until the end of the summer, Lord willing, because we have a lot of work we want to do to the property and to the building. But the Lord continues to give us increase, and we may have to go there sooner because we just don't have any space. So we're thankful for your prayers. We ask for much wisdom as we transition and for what the Lord's doing in your body as well as our body, which is very much the same. We're not flashy. In some ways, we're not fun, but we are seeking to be faithful. We are seeking to be faithful. And in so doing, yeah. When people come to our church, I'll often say we're the most boring church around. All we do is pray the Word, sing the Word, and preach the Word, and that's it. And if that's what you want, you'll like it here. If you don't, you won't. 
And it's that simple. We don't market ourselves. We just seek to be faithful to the Lord, and He's been blessing, and you do the same. And that's why we love each other, and we're such a kindred spirit. And it's so encouraging even to come over here this afternoon after being with our people this morning and worship in, in exactly the same way, doing exactly the same things. We celebrated communion this morning, and it is a privilege to be with you. And as you already know this, your pastor is one of my dearest brothers, one of my mentors in many ways, and one of my prayer partners, and it is a blessing. So thank you, brother. It's a joy to serve you and your ministry in this way. Please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk, we were in Zechariah earlier, Zechariah being uh, in many ways a post-exilic or exilic book, if you will. Habakkuk is pre-exilic. If you don't know what that means, that means pre-the exile of Judah. Habakkuk deals with the judgment that is looming and coming upon Judah, and I'd like us to turn and consider what the prophet, or better yet, what the Lord has to say to us through this very unique prophet, Habakkuk. I'd like to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and that'll be our focus uh, this morning. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, hear the word of the Lord. I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Verse 2, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor and arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Amen. Where do you turn when life seems to have turned on you? Where do you go? when the perplexities of life have you confused? Where do you take your confusions when the very character of God and the seeming conduct of God, from your vantage point, seem to contradict? Who do you turn to when from your thoughts and from your life, God seems silent? Where do we go on earth when heaven doesn't respond to our prayers? Where do we go when it seems like God has left? This really, these questions, these very provocative on purpose questions really get to the heart of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a, is a phenomenal prophecy, but it's very unique in that most of the prophets, all of them in many ways, 
especially in the minor prophets, they are prophets that stand between man and God, and they speak on behalf of God to man. Yet Habakkuk is very unique. It's very different because Habakkuk, as a prophet, he stands between God and man, but in many ways he speaks to God on behalf of man. It's, it's fascinating and so helpful because Habakkuk in many ways confronts us, or better yet, comforts us with many of the confusions we face, even as it relates to the very will and work of God. I don't know about you, but there are times in which the ways of God confuse me. There are times in which the work of God perplexes me. When I can't make out, what are you doing, Lord? Have you ever prayed that? Have you ever looked at your spouse and looked at your wife, looked at your children, looked at your family, looked at your job? Here you go. Looked at your world amidst, shall we say, confusing elections and said, Lord, where are you? Lord, what is going on? Lord, how can this be? Lord, how can we have presidents and rulers and potentates that promote murder, and your hand of judgment doesn't come down upon us and them. Lord, how can this be? You ever had that? Of course you have. You ever look at your life and think, Lord, this just doesn't seem right. Where are you? Yes, you have. I have. We all have. Part of the Christian life, the C stands for confusing. It is. It is confusing. It's filled with conundrums. But those conundrums are not with God. They are with our view of God. They are with our understanding of God. They are with our relation with God and understanding how to trust Him amidst our perplexities. And that's the book of Habakkuk. Now, let me give you a little context here before we jump into chapter 2. What is going on? Well, Habakkuk is broken down by these two complaints of the prophet. Again, he's speaking on behalf of the people to God. And he essentially, he brings his perplexities to the Lord. He's perplexed. And what is he perplexed by? The prophet is perplexed that God has not judged Judah. Judah has become so wicked so wayward in her rulers, her, her king, King Jehoiakim, one of the most vile kings in all of Judah and all of Israel. He was the king that essentially kills his own son, laying him on the altar. He was the king, the only king by name, though other kings likely did it, but he's the one that actually is named for murdering one of the prophets. This king was vile, wicked, and he's the king of Judah. He's the leader. And when your king goes wrong, well, the country goes wrong. And so the nation of Judah is in complete wickedness. There is evil, rampant abuse happening. You want to talk about prejudice? You want to talk about governmental overreach? That's what's happening in Judah right now. And there's a remnant of righteous people that have remained faithful and that want to continue to follow the law, yet the law is being perverted by the law by the ones who are given to the caretaking and overseeing of the law of Yahweh, they're perverting it. They're twisting it so they can pad their own pockets. I know that doesn't make a connection to our day, but this we're talking about Judah and their day, right? They're perplexed by this. 
Lord, where are you? The righteous, literally, as you'll see here in verse 4 of chapter 1, the righteous are being abused by the wicked. But the wicked aren't the Babylonians. They're the Judeans. They're the people of Judah, the people of God. And they've turned their back on Torah. They've turned their back on the law. And now they're abusing their brethren for their own benefit. And the righteous, the few, the chosen, the the small remnant that love the Lord and love Torah and love the glory of God, they're sitting here watching the glory of man explode and wondering, where's the glory of God? Where to be the people of God? Lord, where are you? How can you let this happen? These are your people. If you're tracking with me, you're getting the sentiment of Habakkuk. And if you're tracking, you'll also get a sense of this, which is so helpful. Habakkuk, in many ways, is little Job. Now, if you know, Job is a pretty massive tome in the Old Testament that deals with very many of the same things, confusion, perplexities, Lord, how does this happen? How does this go on? So, if you don't have the patience to, uh, shall we say, pursue the book of Job, go to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is the cliff notes of Job. Habakkuk will give you the best of Job without dealing with all of Job's friends that just go on and on and on, right? It's a blessing. And so you can see the Lord is good because these perplexities that face us, this is real life. This is where we live. And the Word of God has real answers for us. And it's so helpful. So if you're looking at at your Bible, verses 1 to 4 is really Habakkuk's first complaint. And his first complaint is essentially, Lord, why? He asked the question, why? I was in a counseling session right before I came here with a young man whose father just killed himself. A young man who's not part of our church, but has been coming to our church looking for answers. And what a joy to be able to sit down with him and share my heart with him as he shared his heart with me. And he asked this very same question, why? Why would the Lord allow this? It's the real question. And that's what Habakkuk is asking, I think, out of a a sense of sincerity and love for Yahweh, a sense of perplexity at Yahweh. He says, why have you not judged us? Why has your holy wrath not come upon our people? Well, the Lord answers him, starting in verse 5, and he answers down to verse 11, and a lesson to be learned, when the Lord answers, his answers are not often what you expect. His word does not often give us what we want, but his word is true, his word is good, his answers are always right. And so Habakkuk asks, Lord, why have you not acted? That's literally what he asks. Lord, why are you silent? Why are you not doing anything? Lord, why are you just standing idly by. Imagine asking the Lord that. And the Lord answers and says, oh, you think I'm standing idly by? Listen, Habakkuk, I have been working and never stopped working. My plan is going forward and it hasn't slowed down. You just can't see it. As a matter of fact, Habakkuk, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. The wrath of God is standing at the door and it's about ready to come in with a nation that you would never believe. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that most wicked and vile nation that is ruthless and brutal and shows no mercy. I'm about ready to bring them across the land of Judah, and I am going to judge the people just like you're asking. It's coming, Habakkuk. What do you think Habakkuk's response was? Praise the Lord, I've been waiting. 
No, Habakkuk turns to the Lord and says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Just like we do, Lord, what are you doing? And then we open the Word and we see from the Word what he's doing. And then we're like, oh, Lord, I don't know about that. Habakkuk's like, whoa, wait a minute. He goes from asking the Lord why, and now he goes, he changes his question and goes, but Lord, how? How? How can you do this? For it was like, Lord, why aren't you doing anything? And then the Lord says, no, I'm doing a lot. And he says, Lord, how can you do that? So you can see he's just totally perplexed and confused. And so that's what you see in verses 12 to 17. He says, this is, the prophet says, Lord, how can you, who is purer than to even, your eyes are so pure, you're so holy, you're so set apart from sin, how can you, with purer eyes than to ever look at evil, actually use evil in your plan? That's essentially what he's asking. You're taking these evil men, and they're going to be your judges upon thus less evil Judah. That's his perspective. That's his question. That's what he's asking. And so we've reached chapter 2. Are you with me? We've looked at the two complaints. We've looked at God's one one response, and now we're in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, God responds. Now, not before we get set up grammatically and syntactically. What does that mean? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower. I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. What is this? This is, this is called a grammatical pregnant pause. You know, in a movie, when they kind of pan the scene, you get this panoramic view when the, when the, um, the screen kind of pans out and you're like, ooh, something big's about to happen. Or you get the music comes in under, subtly underneath, like something, mood's changing, something's going on. That happens, obviously, in the scriptures, in grammar and syntax. And what is happening right now? We're being set up. Something big's about to happen. And the prophet is setting us up. I'm going to stand at my watch post. I'm waiting to see what the Lord's going to say to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like the watchman on the wall who's alert. I'm looking for it. It's coming. And there's a sense in which it didn't happen right away. There's a sense in which he's waiting, he's anticipating, and the anticipation builds as the Lord waits, and we sense it in the text. And then verse 2, and, if I re- and when I read it, I paused and I said, verse 2, which I don't do with any other verse, to kind of build the anticipation, because as he's waiting for the Lord to answer his complaint, finally, verse 2, the Lord answered me. Now, what's interesting about this, even grammatically in the Hebrew and the syntax of the structure, is if you go back and you look across the page to chapter 1, verse 5, you'll notice the Lord's answer isn't set apart by the Lord saying, the Lord answered me. You have to discern as you read through it, oh, this is Yahweh speaking here, not the prophet anymore. And you can discern that pretty quickly, but you you have to discern it nonetheless. But now in chapter 2, after this uh, shall we say, set up, now we have the prophet say, and the Lord answered me. And it's like, yeah, he put me in my place. He answered my complaint again in a way I wasn't expecting, and I heard from the Lord. And so that's where we are in the text. The complaints have been given, the response is coming, and now what will the Lord do? Well, let me give you the summary of what he's going to say in verses 2 to 5. Essentially, what he's going to do, which I love this, he's going to do what is somewhat abnormal. 
Yahweh is going to give the response the people should have to his prophecy before he actually gives the full prophecy. He actually, in verses 2 to 5, he's going to explain to them by way of preparation, this is how you should respond. And in many ways, this is why you're confused. This is why you're perplexed. So he's going to go, if you will, right to the heart of the matter before he even gives them the full prophecy of his plan and what he's going to do. Why? Because he doesn't want them to miss the main thing. He doesn't want them to miss the heart of what is going on with their heart and the heart of what's going on from his heart, i.e., what's the main thing? I don't want you to miss it. I'm going to give it to you before I even explain the details of what I'm going to do through Babylon and, and even on Babylon. And so when you're looking at verses 2 to 5, you are getting in every way the meat of the message of the prophet of Habakkuk. And dear loved ones, you're getting the meat of the message of the gospel, the meat of the message of Torah. It's all summarized right here in verse 4. Matter of fact, you could say the whole of Scripture in many ways is summarized in Habakkuk chapter 2, the end of verse 4. And we'll look at that when we get there. So what you're going to see is Yahweh brings clarity to his people in preparation for the prophecy he will reveal. That's literally a summary of what verses 2 to 5 gives. As a matter of fact, he's going to give three clarifications. So if you're following with me, here's my proposition. We're going to see three clarifications from Yahweh in preparation of the prophecy he will give. Three serious clarifications as he prepares his prophet and his people for rightfully responding to the revelation of the Lord. Three clarifications. Here are three words, if you're tracking with me through the notes, that will help you track with me through the text. Three words that you can hang your thoughts on and this text upon. Number one, word. Word. Number two, wait. Wait. And number three, walk. Walk. We will see clarity given by God regarding the Word. We'll see that in verse two. We'll see clarity given by God regarding the wait. We'll see that in verse three. And then clarity regarding the walk given by God in verses four to five. Now remember, Habakkuk is perplexed regarding how a holy God can act in bringing judgment through a very wicked nation. God responds, essentially, by saying, pay attention to my word, wait patiently for its sure fulfillment while you endure in walking faithfully before me. It's essentially what he's going to say in these verses. This is how the righteous live godly while living amidst a confusing and seamless, God, seemingly godless world. Has no connection to us, right? Absolutely it does. This is exactly what we need. This is a message, obviously, for Judah and for his people in this pre-exilic time as they're about ready to go into exile, and it's just as relevant today for the people of God today. Huge as we live in a godless world, and yet we're called upon and we strive to live godly. How do we do that? We need to focus on the Word while we wait patiently for its fulfillment, while we strive to live faithfully before Him. 
So helpful. The first point of clarity given by Yahweh is found in verse 2, and it is clarity regarding the Word. Now look again at verse 2 that begins with, and the Lord, Yahweh, answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it, unquote. Again, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 5, Yahweh responds to the prophet's complaint. He begins by commanding Habakkuk. If you look back at verse 1, I love it. Habakkuk complains to Yahweh. Yahweh commands Habakkuk. Here again, Habakkuk complains to Yahweh, and what his first response? Command, command, command. I just like that because God is just, again, doing what he does, making sure we all know who's in charge. All right, you want to bring me your complaints? Just know I'm going to give you my commands. You can share with me your perplexities. I'll share with you my law. This is what you must do. This is how this works. And I, and I love that. The commands give clarity and point to the clarity of the message. The prophet is confused in part because, here you go, he has focused on his own thoughts and feelings, and God wants the prophet and the people to focus on his sure and perfect word. Verse 2 is all about the clarity of the vision or the message that God will now declare. It is always God's word that brings clarity amidst life's confusions, and the prophet must be reminded of that. There are three ways in this text in verse 2, that God's word, his divine message is clarified here in verse 2. First, notice, I want you to see the priority of the word, meaning the priority of the revelation that God's going to give, the priority of his word, the priority of the message. Verse 2 says, Habakkuk, you must write the vision. Write the vision, meaning all that I am showing and declaring to you must be written down because it is vital, it is foundational for you and the people. It is vital because it will help you better know me and my ways. It is foundational because this message will equip you to live rightfully before me while living in this world that seems to have all gone wrong. Listen, when God prioritizes a message, he sees that it is written down so that it endures, so that it might be heard by all. Remember Exodus 34.1? God wrote his law in the tablets of stone, further highlighting their divine priority. Deuteronomy 6, 9, the people were to write the Shema on the doorpost, part of it, on the doorposts of their house, again, further demonstrating the priority of the revealed word. The prophets were often told to write the revealed word of God, to write it down even in front of the people that it might provoke them and even serve as a judge against them. Isaiah 30, verse 8, Ezekiel 37. So he says, write it down, because he's wanting them to see this message is paramount. I don't want you to miss it. This is foundational to how you need to respond rightly to me in the midst of your confusion and in the midst of your difficulty that is still yet coming. Notice verse 2 says, make it plain. Make it plain, which highlights, number two, the exposition of the word. Not just the priority of the word, but the exposition of the word. The Hebrew word here for making it plain literally means to explain it. Give the sense and the meaning of the message that I am about to give to you. You must make sure the people understand it clearly. Make it clear. Make it simple. Make it understandable to the people. 
write it down so that it might be explained to the people, meaning so that they might rightfully understand the message. You can see where God's focus is. What is God wanting his prophet to focus on? The divine message. The prophet is confused. The people are perplexed, in part because they have lost sight of God's word. They have lost sight of God's perfect message. They have lost sight of God's sure promise. They have lost sight of God's unchanging plan. Now Yahweh responds, and he will bring his people right back to his word that they might once again live rightfully and confidently before him all their days. Notice the text as it says, make it plain on tablets. This is very interesting as it sounds similar to the language of Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 10 where God wrote his law on the tablets of stone. Actually, when you study this out, I believe most of the time, if not every time, we see this word in Hebrew used for tablets. It is in, in the Old Testament, it is used in reference to God's law. I believe the clarity of the word is shining forth as God will no doubt summarize the whole law on the tablets of the whole law. He will summarize in what he's going to say in the righteous shall live by faith. He's going to take it all and bring it all together. And he goes, this is the whole point. This is what it was all about. That my people might live by faithfulness, in faithfulness before me. Write it down, make it plain, so that all can understand it. The key, Habakkuk, is in knowing me, Yahweh says, the key to seeing me rightly is in hearing and obeying my word faithfully. Habakkuk, you have become confused by life circumstances, but you need to be consumed and controlled by my divine revelation. Now, dear loved ones, this is exactly what happens to us. When the circumstances of life become greater, bigger, loom larger than the revealed Word of God, we will always be perplexed. We will always be confused. We will always not know what to do. And this is the dilemma. This is the fight for us as believers. It's fighting, taking every thought captive, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, so that my circumstances, which look confusing from a worldly perspective, my perilous pain and struggles with family, with life, with job, with disappointments, with my own struggle, with sin, and all these things that we wrestle with, we have to be careful that our life circumstances don't become greater than God's revealed Word. Because life circumstances are ever-changing, ever-moving, ever-perplexing, but God's Word is never-changing. God's Word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's Word is the anchor for the soul amidst the afflictions of life, even when they're emotional and personal. We go to the Word and it anchors our soul. We go to the Word and it brings what we need, clarity. Clarity to make decisions. Clarity to move forward in courage. Clarity to live a committed Christ-like life. But oftentimes, I don't have clarity. I'm confused. Where do I get clarity? From the Word of God. And where never fails. What has happened when I'm confused? I've lost sight of the Word of God. My perplexities have become, listen, this is it. This is, this is 
This is so profoundly simple and yet so real for all of us. At least it is for me. My perplexities loom larger than the eternal promises of God. How can that be? But that's how it is, isn't it? When I'm dealing with what is, let's be real, dear loved one, a temporal issue. It's a temporal issue. Just about everything we deal with as believers is temporal compared to the gospel, compared to my eternal life. Cancer, I don't minimize it, it, but it's temporal. Job loss, I don't minimize it, it's temporal. Loss of children, of which I've had that in my own family. It's heart-wrenching, but it's temporal. See, when we allow the temporal, my, on my way here, I got a phone call. My, mom, my mother, my mother and father, and my mother and father-in-law at those interesting ages of which we're caring for them, and some of you know that well. We're even in the process of trying to figure out how to move my mother and father-in-law in with us. Yes, we just had a baby three months ago, and yes, my daughter's getting married, and yes, we're going to move our in-laws in. That's what everybody does, right? Yeah. Talk about perplexities. Talk about needing to focus on the promise of God. I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm preaching to myself. Thank you all for listening, right? <laughs> this is what we do. I mean, this is what we do. On my, on my way here, I get, I, I get a message. My mom just fell down. My 75-year-old mother, 74-year-old mother, just fell down and broke her arm. It's really bad. Pray for her. She's in the hospital. I got a text sitting right there. My dad's sending me a picture. She's in writhing pain, right? Perplexities. We deal with, this is what we deal with. This is how life rolls. Now, I love my mother. She loves Christ. She's an amazing, godly woman. And I'm sad for her, and I'm going to do all I can to help her. But I understand that that's a temporal issue. And she needs care, and she's going to get it, and we're going to love on her. But the promise of God for her life, that the Lord will never leave her nor forsake her, that she is held in the hand of Almighty God and Almighty Christ Himself, her Savior, is he holds her even now as she's in that examination room, and his hand is in the Father's hand, and nothing can snatch her out of his hand. See, that looms larger in my mind and in my heart other than the temporal reality of the difficulty of being bandaged up and the physical therapy. And you know how our minds race. How is all this going to happen? I don't know, but we'll figure it out. But I'm going to focus on what the Lord has promised, that he's with her. He's going to walk with her. I can't be there, but the Lord is there. I don't need to be there, right? You see how this works. Well, in Habakkuk and the people, the remnant, the holy ones there in Judah, they had lost sight of that. And Yahweh in his sweet shepherding is bringing them back to what matters most, the priority of the word. And it is, it is so helpful. So helpful. Look, the clarity of the word is seen in its priority. It's seen in its exposition. And I love this. It's seen in its proclamation. Look at the text, verse 2. Habakkuk, I want you to write it down and make it plain so that, here's the purpose. Here's the purpose why I want you to write it and make it plain so that my divine word can be proclaimed to all. This is what he's saying. Habakkuk, I want you to. I want this message that I'm giving to you to be seen and heard by all. Therefore, write it down, make it plain, that it might be heralded across the land. Habakkuk is to see that others get involved in disseminating the divine message abroad. The language here, verse 2, 
It describes a reader who runs, not a runner who reads. So he's not saying, hey, make the message so clear, so simple that you can post it on a billboard so that everybody that's running by is like, oh yeah, that's what's going to happen. That's not what he's saying. The way the text is written, it's so that prophets, because prophets were often seen to be running with the divine message that comes up in the text often, where the prophet was to run here and there, speaking the message, preaching the message, and he wants those who are going to run to take this message and run to the four corners of Judah and preach it and teach it. Because again, this is what the people need. Jeremiah 23, 11, you can see this running and prophesying together. In office, an official herald in Scripture was often seen running with a message to deliver it. Numbers 11, 27, 1 Samuel 4, 12 to 13, 2 Kings 4 to 26. The prophet is fixated on God's method of judgment and it perplexes him, but God seeks to bring clarity to this confused servant by reinforcing his divine message as priority. The promises of God are, sh- are the sure path for dealing with the perplexities of life. The Word of God brings clarity to the seeming confusing ways of God. Look to the Word. Lean upon the Word. Live by the Word. That, his, the, that is the message that Habakkuk is learning. That is the message that we must be reminded of every single Lord's Day. Life is often hard and perplexing, but God has given us much light in His testimonies and in His Word that make what? Psalm 19. That make the simple wise. The law of the Lord does what to the hurting soul? It revives it. The testimony of the Lord make wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord bring rejoicing to the sad heart. The commandments of the Lord enlighten the blind eyes. The word of the Lord warns. The word of the Lord protects. The word of the Lord propels. The word of the Lord prospers all who will follow it. Psalm 19, 7 to 14. For Habakkuk, God now reveals the future so that he might live confidently and faithfully in the present. God will once again explain what will happen so that his people can live rightfully and peacefully amidst their earthly stress of a sin-cursed world. This is what God clarifies. The Word, the priority of the Word, the proclamation of the Word, the exposition of the Word. Not only the clarity of the word, but look next, the clarity regarding the weight. Oh, I like this. I need this. Not only the clarity of the word as we deal with perplexities, but the clarity of the weight. Verse 3, look at it now. Verse 3 now gives us a clear reason why the message must be written down, why the message must be made plain, and why the message must be proclaimed for all to hear. Why? Why is this so important? Because the fulfillment of the message will not happen immediately. Hmm. Any connection to our day? Absolutely. The faithful will need to wait patiently on God's timing to completely fulfill His Word. Are you waiting for Him to fulfill His Word in your life? Some of you are frustrated with the process of sanctification Why do I still struggle with this sin? Why do I have to still deal with this? Well, there's no doubt multiple answers to that. But one for sure is your process of fighting sin is the means of grace to your maturation. 
It is you waiting for God to fulfill his promise because your glorification, which is your perfection in Christ, it's guaranteed. It's promised to you if you're a true believer. And that reality comes true as you faithfully obey him in fighting sin. So the very thing you're complaining about is the very thing God designed to bring you to the end. And you must wait faithfully, patiently for him to do his work in fulfilling his promised word, which is your glorification. And so it is here. He's saying the same thing to them. You must wait. Look at the text where it says, still the vision, meaning the divine message God will now give to Habakkuk, it awaits future fulfillment. Point being here, I love it, delay. Delay is part of God's divine plan. I love this. This is the Yoda speak of Scripture sometimes. It delays and yet it does not delay. God rarely acts quickly from a human perspective. As verse 3 says it, it might seem slow to you, meaning it will seem slow to your finite eyes, but you must wait. Wait for it. Wait for it in hope. Why? Because as verse 3 says, the vision, the promised plan of God has an appointed time. It has an appointed time, meaning a specific and sovereignly set day and hour when God will accomplish what he has promised. Again, look at verse 3. As the vision, the message actually moves every minute toward the guaranteed end of fulfillment. So it delays and yet it doesn't delay. It's not stopped. It's moving all the time. Interesting. I love it. It it awaits its appointed time. It will delay. The message, the vision does not delay. What's going on here? From your perspective, from my perspective, it's perplexing in what God is doing. It seems like this is taking forever, as the text says, right? A day for us is a thousand years, but a thousand years for the Lord is like a day, right? So from our vantage point, it's like, Lord, what are you doing? This is taking forever. I've been praying, I've been praying, I've been praying. Why won't he come to Christ? I've been working and working towards my children. What is going on? Why won't they? Why won't he? Why can't I? I know you've never prayed that. Lord, it's delaying. What's going on? And the Lord's like, yeah, from your perspective, it looks delayed. But from my perspective, all that I'm doing is moving perfectly. It is moving perfectly towards its appointed end. You just can't see it, but I can. This is how we wait upon the Lord patiently. When we understand, here's the nugget, dear loved ones, when we understand the Lord sees what we can't, the Lord knows what we don't know, and the Lord is sovereignly in control of what we are not. He understands the end from the beginning, and He has it already planned out. We just have to trust Him and let Him work it out. So from our vantage point, it's delayed, but from His vantage point, no. It's already done. It's just moving. I got the appointed day, and everything is working itself out. Just be patient. And so you wait. You wait. This is what he says. Wait for it. Seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. Wait for it. It's sure. It's guaranteed. It's steady. Oh, dear loved ones, I hasten on, but I'm not going to move too quickly here because I want you to know, I want you to know that I believe in my few years of studying God's Word, and I've wrestled with this in my own heart, my own life, 
that I believe the greatest way to summarize the pilgrimage of the Christian life is in one word, and that word is waiting. I believe this is it. I believe this is the golden nugget. I believe this is the clearest summary of what we do as believers. We wait. We wait. We wait. But the question is, how are we waiting? There's many ways to wait. Frustrated, anxious, distracted, discontent, not satisfied, or we wait patiently. We wait eagerly. We wait joyfully. We wait confidently. You, you see here? This is what he's saying. You got to focus on the priority of the word and you got to remember the wait. This reality of waiting for the followers of Yahweh, for the believers in Christ, it comes up all the time in the scriptures. Psalm 25, Psalm 27, Psalm 31, Psalm 37, Psalm 38, Psalm 39, Psalm 52, Psalm 59, Psalm 62, Psalm 106, Psalm 130, all talk about this reality, waiting, waiting, waiting. You know Isaiah 40, those who wait upon the Lord will have their what? Youth renewed like the eagles. They will run and not grow weary, right? They will not faint because they're waiting upon the Lord. This is, a, this is in so many ways a golden thread through the scriptures of truth. And it's so helpful because this is where we often struggle. Romans 8 declares the waiting even of creation waits. 1 Corinthians 1, Galatians 5, 1 Thessalonians 1, Titus 2 literally says the gospel of Jesus Christ has appeared to all men, and guess what it does? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It teaches us to embrace godliness, and all of that is what? So that we might wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about equipping us. To wait, to wait well. How do you wait well as a believer? Well, I'm glad you asked. You wait well, here you go, by resting upon the Word, what we've just seen. By remembering the Word is priority, not my perplexities. I've got my perplexities, but I'm going to bring them to Christ. I'm going to bring them to the Lord, and I'm going to trust Him with them. But I'm not going to focus on them. You learn to wait well when you learn to make your focus the eternal while you glance at the temporary. When you live in the temporary, but you live for the eternal. When your gaze and your passion and your purpose is all in the eternal. When you lift your eyes to heaven while you walk upon earth. Or better yet, when you view what happens on earth through the lens of heaven, not viewing heaven from the lens of earth. This is why we struggle to wait, because earth is big and heaven is small. But those who learn to wait well have learned to fixate their minds on heaven. Colossians 3, 1 to 4, fix your mind on Christ, where Christ is seated in the heavenlies, where you are in Christ, not on the things of the earth. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. I do not fixate on the temporary, but on the eternal. Because the temporary is fading, it's transient, it's moving away, but the eternal is forever. See, this is how you wait well. When you are not just working for the eternal and walking in the eternal, but you're waiting in light of the eternal. It, it, it guides 
and goads everything in your life. And this is what the prophet needed to learn. This is what we all need to learn. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of sadness, in the midst of difficulty, learning to wait is hard. But guess where you learn to wait the best? In the midst of all of those. Listen to me. We hate waiting. We hate it. That's why your phone, you love it so much because you've got to wait for nothing. <laughs> that's why you want a new one, a faster one, because you've got to wait two seconds, and that's too long. So the new phone, I only have to wait a second. I want that new phone, right? I mean, this is how we are. It's, it's, a, it's one of the marketing, uh, shall we say, foundations of our world. Instant gratification, instant knowledge, instant everything. But with the Lord, wait, wait. Why? Because waiting teaches us to trust. Waiting teaches us to look to Him and away from self. Waiting teaches us, or shall we say, loosens our grip on self in this world and tightens our grip on Him and the world to come. Listen to me. Waiting is one of the hardest things you'll ever do, and God does His greatest work while you're waiting. He does. He takes you through suffering, loss, disappointment, sorrow, sadness, rebellious children, rebellious spouse, untimely deaths, all these things, miscarriages, diagnoses that come out of nowhere and you're just like, what's going on? And now you have to wait. Perplexed. And dear loved ones, God is working on you like he's never worked before. He's shaping and molding your life and your heart so that you learn to wait well on him. Because, think about it, when, I, when I've been married 30 years, did I tell you we just had a baby three months ago? That's to encourage some of you. Laura was talking to me about this earlier. Having a baby at 50, may it encourage you. May you, it can happen, even when you don't plan it. It's a blessing. We are loving life. I love my wife. She is an angel. When I met my wife, who's from Baltimore, and I'm from West Virginia, I don't know why she married me, but I don't ask. <laughs> we only saw each other on the weekends. And most of the time, most of the time, it was like one day, two days max, and then I had to go back to work and so on and so forth. Man, I had to wait. I had to wait to see her. I had to wait to get married. It was so hard. It was so difficult. Oh, but when we got together, whoo, watch out. <laughs> the anticipation, Right? The exhilaration, the blessing was so much sweeter because the waiting made it so. Part of what God is doing is preparing us to see Him, preparing us for heaven, preparing us for the joys of the blessings of our, of our glorification and all that's going to come for it. And as we wrestle through the waiting in this world, it's even going to amplify all that's coming as we enjoy it. The waiting makes it sweeter. The waiting makes it more precious. The waiting helps me to see and elevate it right where it should be. Amen, sister. It, there's so much more I want to say about that, but I hasten on to verses 4 to 5 because some of you thought I couldn't do this, and I'm almost done. <laughs> I won't do it the way I want to do it, but we're going to do it. You've seen... The clarity of the word, you've seen the clarity of the weight. Now look at the clarity of the walk. Verses 
4 to 5. And let me tell you what he's going to do here. It all comes to this point, right? It really does, climactically. This is the point. I believe this is the whole point of the message. I believe this is the summation of Torah. I believe this is the summation of the gospel. I believe it all comes down to this. Three times in the New Testament, of which Romans chapter 1 repeats Habakkuk 2. Galatians, Galatians repeats it. Hebrews repeats it. Repeats this passage because it's foundational to everything in the Christian life, everything to the followers of Yahweh, the walk of faith. What he will now do is he will contrast two responses to the revelation that he will give. He'll say, okay, I'm about ready to give you the revelation. I'm about ready to proclaim the message. I'm about ready to tell the people, and here are the only two responses you're going to have. This is it. These are your only options. This is what you're going to have. You're going to have those who walk by self or those who walk by faith. This is it. Those who hear the divine message and say, no, thank you. I'm going to go with my message. I'm going to go my way. I'm going to live with self. And he's going to contrast that or compare that person with the Babylonians because that's what he does. Look at, look at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Who's he talking about? Who's the he? Is it the wicked in Judah? Is it general population? Or is it the Chaldeans? Well, obviously, the more you read and you get down to verse 5, you realize really quickly he's talking about the Chaldeans, i.e. the Babylonians, because they are the ones who are the wicked ones who gather up all the nations greedily for their own possession. So now he's going to compare the remnant in Judah with the wicked in Babylon. And he says, their soul is puffed up. They're marked by pride They're filled with pride, this plague of pride. What? Self-reliance, self-allegiance. They're walking by self. It's all for the pleasure of self, for the praise of self. Skip down to verse 5. He continues. Moreover, wine is a traitor. It could be wine. It could be wealth. There's a a translational issue in the Hebrew there. But the point of the passage is arrogance. Arrogance. He's a man marked by pride. He's a man marked by arrogance, an arrogant man who is never at rest. Notice the text. He's not just prideful and arrogant. He's greedy. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. And it's proven by the fact that he gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. He thinks he has the right to all these people to be his slaves, to be his minions. He is a man This is a nation, this is a people that walk by self, for self, by self, to the praise of self. But go back to verse 4. He contrasts now that reality with this. But the righteous shall live by faith. He's saying, listen, look at the Babylonians. Yes, they're an evil people, just like the wicked evil in Judah. But their commonality is their self fixated, they're self-focused, they're self-loyal. But the righteous, who are those? Those are the ones who love Yahweh. They're not self-righteous. They're not trying to become righteous. They are righteous because they've humbled themselves in utter dependence to Yahweh. And like Psalm 1 says, they meditate on the law day and night, and that manifests itself because they do not sit in the way of scoffers or stand in the seat of sinners or walk by the road of the wicked, but they meditate on the law day and night. This is the righteous one. These are the righteous one, already mentioned earlier in verse 4. These are the ones who love Yahweh, love His law, and want His glory over all, the remnant. And he says, the righteous 
Look at it. Shall live by faith. Actually, by his faith, or better yet, by his faithfulness. And this is interesting. This, I believe, is the heart, the nugget of all that has been said and all that needs to be said. In the midst of perplexity, in the midst of confusion, the answer isn't to relieve all of the perplexities because that's not going to happen or relieve all of the confusion. That's not going to happen. It's for the righteous to remember the faithfulness of God and then to walk faithfully before Him while they wait on God to prove Himself faithful yet again. This is what He's saying. The righteous shall live by faith. They shall live. Unlike the wicked who will be judged, the righteous shall live. They shall receive reconciliation and a right relationship and the quality of life with God. They will not be under judgment. They will be under grace. But they will also walk by faith. They will live by faith. Their life will be marked by faith, but not just faith. The nuance of the Hebrew word here is you cannot dissect the act of faith with the actions of faith. You cannot simply speak of this as a moment of faith without speaking of it in manifested faithfulness because they go hand in hand. You have to have both. And thus, the better translation from the Hebrew is the righteous shall live by his fidelity, by his faithfulness. It, it, is, it is his faithfulness. This is the point that Habakkuk needs to get and the people need to see. It is in the midst of perplexity and confusion, stop trying to figure out all the answers and stay focused on what God requires. Just be faithful before me. Just trust me with all of your confusion and perplexities and keep walking by faith and living faithfully and watch me work it out. This is the message. This is what he's saying. And this is the clarity. And don't you love it? He brings all of that before he even gives the full revelation of the prophecy. Why? Because this is what matters most. Remember the Word. It's the focus. Remember, the Word's not going to fulfill itself instantaneously. Wait for it. And how do I wait for it? By walking faithfully, staying focused on the main thing, faithfulness before me, keeping my eyes on the faithfulness of Christ, on the faithfulness of Yahweh, because that fuels my faithfulness. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father God, we, we love you and we are thankful for your word and we pray that you'll help us, Lord, as we walk in it to walk faithfully before you all the days of our life because, Father, you are worthy of that and so much more. Bless us now as we go to your table that we might be a blessing to your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.